Hi there, this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, and I'm Carla Nappi. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Alex Huey about her new book, The Psychophysical Ear, Musical Experiments, Experimental Sounds, 1840 to 1910, and that was just published in 2013 with the MIT Press. Now, this is a book that looks at a period in the middle of the 19th century when natural science and music came together in the study of what Huey describes as and what her um, scientist and analyst described as the psychophysics of sound. So in this story, we see the emergence of new kinds of musical aesthetics, new kinds of music coming into the story, um, new ways of recording music and, and making the study of music possible, new ways of visualizing music, new notions of sound, and new ways of thinking about and conceptualizing hearing and listening. Now, this is a story that's going to be of obvious interest to anyone interested in history of physics, history of psychology, history of music and aesthetics, but there are also moments in the story that are really, really fascinating fascinating and that intersect with the history of evolution, the history of biology, the history of analogy and medical studies and metaphor in really, really fascinating ways. So I hope you enjoy. The connection was a little bit spotty, so you'll hear um, at some points the sound kind of goes in and out, but stick with it because um, it's a really great, I think, set of issues that Alex is talking about. And you'll definitely want to get to the end where she talks about her new project on the history of background music and music, which is also uh, really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Alexandra Huey about her new book, The Psychophysical Ear, Musical Experiments, Experimental Sounds, 1840 to 1910. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Alex, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. So, Alex, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of science and technology studies? Well, um, it's sort of two parts. I, I mean, I grew up, um, it was sort of expected among many other things that I would play various instruments and, and get, you know, musical training. And um, so I'd always played piano since, you know, I was maybe five or so and had all this pressure from my grandma to practice, you know, several hours a day. And I had been playing about music, uh, you know, through high school and even when I was looking at college and had thought about actually going to music conservatory. Um, or piano, probably, although I also played string bass at the time in the orchestra. And, um, but this was totally separate from sort of scholarly ambition that I had. Um, once I decided to go to a liberal arts college, I became quite interested in physics and, and ended up majoring in physics with an emphasis in astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is, you know, a liberal arts school, so, you know, we're forced to take classes. Well, we weren't forced, but the idea is to take classes uh, well outside of your major. So I ended up taking a lot of um, art courses and, and writing courses and things like that. I didn't actually take very many history courses at all. <laughs> As an undergrad, I think I took one while I was at Pomona College and then one when I was studying abroad. And um, But sometime in my senior year, um, I, I kind of realized that what I I liked learning about physics. I liked understanding physics. I didn't particularly like doing it, <laughs> and in the sense that I didn't 
I mean, for one thing, I didn't like doing the homework, but I also, I, I just, the, the various projects that I'd been on, and I'd been, you know, I'd done all these internships. I'd, I'd actually worked at NASA one summer and, you know, I'd sort of seen what was out there and, and realized what I found really kind of interesting. And the, the questions that I liked were actually much more a science studies type questions. And so, I remember very clearly this epiphany that I had in my quantum mechanics class, you know, that who thought that this was right? Like, this is such a counterintuitive discipline and, and way of looking at the world. And certainly it was, you know, so innovative at its time. How did they even begin to convince anyone that this was the way that the world worked? And um, and that was what I found fascinating. Of, you know how and why questions and and at the time I didn't know that it was it was actually a whole sort of field of inquiry but you know how did where did scientific knowledge come from how did it get developed and all of that and um, so yeah so I, I started started looking into all of that and and once I realized that there was this whole field of science that's out there um, I just kind of threw myself right into it and and applied to graduate school and and kind of fell madly in love with it as soon as I got there. It actually sounds really familiar um, to me. My background was in the sciences too, and Mm -hmm. pretty much the same thing happened to me. So the book that we're talking about looks at a period in the middle of the 19th century when natural science and music came together in the study of what you call the psychophysics of sound. And in fact, um, at one point in the book, you actually refer to the book as a life story or life history of psychophysics. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what is psychophysics of, or and specifically the psychophysics of sound? And how did you come to this topic in particular for the focus of the book? Okay. Um, sure. If I start rambling in some direction off, feel free to reroute me back to <laughs> this sort of question. <laughs> so psychophysics, as I'm looking at it, and, and certainly it means something somewhat different today. Um, but in the 19th century, it was it, it grows directly out of some work by Gustav Eschner, who was was very much interested. And I talk about he's sort of the focus of the first chapter. Um, who is interested in this this sort of interface between the external slash objective world and the internal slash subjective world, and and would really like to. And he has you know sort of a, a sort of interesting background in and of himself, and he, he has sort of these various crises in his life. But um, he eventually comes upon, or, or I guess discovers, although it's probably not the right way to term it, but he, he claims that he discovers this relationship um, between the psychical world and the physical world. And and he actually comes up with an equation, and he finds this direct relationship between you know the physical stimulation of the external world and the psychical sensation that occurs you know in correlation to that simulation. And... Um, and so he gets quite excited about this, and everyone gets quite excited about this because they think they actually have some, you know, kind of rigorous scientific way, um, although they're not quite using those terms, to to measure things that are going on in the mind. And and the implications are, you know, seem vast, right? That they might be able to um, somehow solve the Cartesian dualist system, or that they might be able to measure feelings. And and people get very excited about this, and. And a lot of people, and this is something that I think has been somewhat overlooked in history of science, 
Precisely because it happens at, you know, the sort of intersection of several disciplines um, in the 19th century. A lot of people from physics and physiology and psychology and philosophy get quite interested in this, I guess it's a technique at the time or an orientation is another way I like to think of it, um, a, an effort to bridge, you know, the psychical and the physical together. And so this leads to actual experiments in the lab, which is, again, what I think is quite neat. Um, and they're, they're trying to, you know, find this, you know, examine this, I guess, interface between um, the objective and subjective or the, the physical and the psychical. And so one of the obvious places to look for that is in sensory perception, right? Because in vision and hearing and smell and sense of acceleration, all these different is in which, you know, an individual orients to the outside um, becomes, you know, a place where they can apply these psychophysical ideas. And so initially, actually, when I started this project, I was thinking of looking at both vision and um, sound sensation, but it became apparent that there was actually a lot of really interesting stuff going on just in sound and in an effort to keep my dissertation um, at a manageable size. And, and also because I think there were some unique issues that occurred just within sound sensation. Um, I was encouraged by my advisor and, I, and it's really to his credit, actually, um, to just focus on the sound aspect of it and, and to bring in a lot of my you know, musical training to do so. Now, you just mentioned that this did start out as a dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about that transition from dissertation to book? Were there any surprises for you, any major transformations, or um, anything that you'd like to share about that process? Oh, um, sure. So, yeah, so this was, I mean, this was a dissertation um, in 2008. And when I was finishing that there were already things that I wanted to expand on um, when I expanded that to a book. So I added quite a bit more of the musical context. Um, previously, I, there was just a little bit, it was much more focused on the individual psychophysical investigators, I call them, because a lot of them wouldn't, they would say that they were doing psychophysics, but they wouldn't call themselves psychophysicists. Um, and look at the way in which they were drawing on, you know, various aspects of the music world to the science. Um, in the book, I wanted to expand that out and actually balance it quite a bit more, partly in order to show um, that this interaction was, was much more extensive and that the network in particular um, was quite big. And um, in each of these you know, sort of cities, in, in Berlin and in Leipzig and Vienna, you have um, these people that are interacting across the board. You have, you know, the, the scientists are hanging out with musicians, they're friends with opera singers, they're friends with um, music critics. The, the music critics are writing to the scientists, asking questions. And so there's this really rich exchange going on that I wanted to bring out more in the book. Um, I'm trying to think if there's much that shifted. I mean, it, it was mostly just fleshing out that kind of stuff. I think I tried to reconcile the ending a little bit. Um, I mean, certainly by 19, a lot of things that are changing in the music world as well as um, in the scientific world. And I mean, they're, they're in some way separating off from each other. And I wanted to, to sort of reconcile the ending of this life story in a way that didn't 
think when I finished the dissertation, and it maybe just was my general sentiment as I was finishing, you know, grad school, that the student, like, you know, my project was dying, like psychophysics just sort of shriveled up and, and ended. And that's not really what happened, right? Um, but, so I needed to fix that ending and actually figure out what happened to psychophysics and, and what, you know, sort of streams still exist in that thinking. And I, and I found that, I think, and I talk a little bit about that in the epilogue. Um, but that might be the biggest change is that it's not the sort of like death of psychophysics at the end. And I think it's a much more honest um, portrayal of what actually happened and, and the way it kind of integrated into other disciplines um, probably doesn't really survive in the form that I talk about um, in the sciences anymore. Now, as we get into the book itself, into the introduction and the chapters, there's uh, there are a few threads that run through the entire work, and there are a couple of really important transformations that you're showing us and showing us from the very beginning of the story. So the book is going to argue that the 19th century psychophysical study of music was framed not only in terms of, well, it was not only framed in terms of musical aesthetics, but as time went on, it increasingly became framed in terms of music, musical aesthetics. So the study of sound sensation actually becomes more and not less bound up with musical culture over time. So that's one of the big arcs that we're going to be tracing. Another of the really important major arcs, and this is going to bring me um, to a, a question for you about the framing and the narrative um, of your book in particular, Musicology and musical aesthetics, as you um, put it in the, early in the book, they actually come to celebrate the individual listener's experience. And so the psychophysical analysts um, or investigators that you show us in the book, they come over time to understand that the only way you can study sound sensation is through the experience of the individual subject. So this is, these are two really interesting and really surprising ways um, that the narrative is going to unfold for anyone who you know, comes to the story expecting that actually the direction of the of progress and the history of science often you know, the, we, we get the other side of these mm-hmm. arguments, right? Okay, so we're going to get to both of these aspects of the these major arcs in turn, but this brings me to something about the way you're actually telling your story that I really, really loved, that was really striking, and that seems really um, interestingly related to this larger narrative point about the increasing importance and emergence of the individual as the subject. So one of the really striking things about your story and your narrative and your style is how you're constantly encouraging the reader to involve her own body her own senses and her own experience in the story. So at various points in the book, you suggest that the reader tries playing certain chords for themselves, um, tries experimenting with creating certain sounds, and you also bring your own experience into the story very early on. So can you talk a little bit about that as a narrative strategy and as a stylistic decision? Sure, yes. Um, right, so this, this arc of, of kind of increasing on the individual and and the role of you know subjective individualist it's clearly something that the psychophysicists were struggling with um, the whole time and I think to, to fully understand what they're getting at it actually does matter um, it's important for us as readers to work with that right and to actually experience that and so yeah, I mean, I think it's more just an effort, really, to 
partly to make the book more engaging and to perhaps understand a little bit better what these individuals are talking about when they are referring to these things. And and also I actually you know want to show the historicization of hearing in in this process. So my advisor, for example, Norton Wise, who you know is, is a brilliant person, is will say himself that he is not particularly musical. And um so I could demonstrate a lot of these things to him. I could, you know, compare uh mean intonation or just intonation to equal temperament and he would claim that he couldn't hear the difference. Or we would do this accommodation demonstration where we would I would, you know, play two chords and you listen to the high notes versus listen to the low notes. And and Smock would say you know, you can hear these chords differently depending on how you, you know, what part of the chord you're focusing on. And and Norton would say that he couldn't hear it. And um, so, and I think this is important. And it's not to say that um, that he, you know, well, it's to show really that our hearing has changed over time, right? And and in the 19th century, everybody would have heard this. They would have heard the difference between the tuning systems. They would have heard the difference when they changed their focus because they were used to listening to music in a different way. And so in some ways, you know, people doing these things that I encourage them to do while they're reading um, may not experience the same thing that the psychophysicists experienced in the 19th century, but that's precisely the point. Um, that the hearing itself has changed and the way in which we listen to music has changed. And so, of course, this is also going to inform the way that we do um, our science, potentially. Great. Thank you so much. Now, as we get into the body chapters of the book, we're going to see, um, in, in addition to these two major arcs that I mentioned, there are a few tensions that are there and that the psychophysical um, investigators that we're going to look at over the course of the chapters are struggling with in different ways and at different times. So one of these tensions, um, as you uh, draw out, I think really beautifully in the book, is a tension about the meaning of expertise. So the meaning of expertise, both scientific expertise and musical expertise, is in flux. In addition to that, there's this these sort of related tensions re regarding the search for universal laws as a scientific goal, and also the kind of the ways to reconcile universal scientific laws with very different, very var variable laws of musical aesthetics. In addition to this, um, and you alluded to this already, there's also going to be an increasing historicism, um, as you show, among these psychophysical investigators who are studying sound sensation over time and in this period. So we're going to see a lot of these tensions play out in individual cases and in the case studies in the chapters of the book to come that each focus on a particular uh, individual or set of individuals in opening up a larger context and a larger set of problems within which these psychophysical uh, investigators are working. So the first chapter focuses on a figure that you've already introduced for us a little bit. This is Gustav Feschner and his development of um, what, again, what you've already talked about a little bit, the psychophysical law. So you talk about this in the course of the chapter. Can you um, expand a little bit on this, this uh, importance of Feschner's work um, and in particular the ways that he, as you show really beautiful, beautifully in the book, is influenced by the local musical culture and performance culture that he's enmeshed in. Sure, yes. Um, so Feschner is already quite important for people in sound studies, and um, so 
there are a number of people that are, are quite interested in him, in him. A lot of the, the work on his stuff is in regards to his, um, I think I talk about it in the book a little bit, how he makes sound visual, right? Because he's talking, or sorry, I'm, I'm going back to Cladney. So Cladney, the sessionary is building on, um, in some ways is the, the sort of step in this whole process because he takes, um, and through the, the bowing of these steel plates and a number of other different sort of techniques that he wishes, he's able to, with the stand, create these really beautiful patterns um, that can then be analyzed. And and I think that this sort of feeds right into the Fessioner, um narrative in the sense that he's able to... The, the, the study of sound for, for Claudney has... You know, in many ways, an aesthetic component, and I think part of what makes his work so appealing was because of you know these these really kind of interesting um, images that were created by sound um, on these metal boards. Um, so Feshner, I think, is following in the same kind of tradition, and and that's why he's so critical here is because a lot of what he is doing. Um, or what I've tried to show is that this project of his, this development of psychophysics as, as a discipline, and I think he would like it to be a discipline, is very much an aesthetic project. And the sort of latter part of his life, a lot of his work was, you know, towards, I mean, we were talking, uh, you mentioned very briefly, one of the tents here is a search for universal laws. I think Fischner was trying to do that as well um, and looking for some sort of um, means of evaluating aesthetics in a scientific way or what he thought was a scientific way. And so it's a little tricky here in the Fechner part because, again, Fechner would say himself that he is not musical. Um, at the same time, and this in some ways sets up, you know, the, what these 19th century, um, you know, people in the German-speaking countries thought of as musical expertise, which is sort of leading to another point you had brought up, that Fischer says that he's not musical, and yet he goes to um, several concerts, you know, a week, and he does have opinions about music, and his remaining diary, and a lot of Fischer stuff was actually lost in World War II, but the, the papers that remain, in his diaries especially, he talks about these concerts, and he has some them. Um, and so his idea of not musical, I think, means that he's not a performer um, and that maybe he doesn't have the confidence to publicly, you know, critique and give feedback on music. But certainly music is a big part of his life. And there's a part of his life as a listener. Um, it's part of his life as sort of a friend and a family member as well. So he's actually directly, or he's related by marriage to Clara Schumann, um, or the woman that becomes Clara Schumann. His very best friend is um, Hermann Hertel, and, and I talk about all this in the book. But, and, and Hermann Hertel is actually sort of right at the center of the Leipzig musical world. He's um, the head of this musical, um, like sheet music company that also at the time was making pianos. He's um, basically sort of the social center and institutional center of, of music in Leipzig and the ability to kind of foster um, the musical community and encourage um, certain composers and certain musicians. And um, so Fechner, of course, is invited to all these parties and, and moves among these people and sees them as, um, I assume, as friends. And so this... You know, again, while he, he will say that he is 
world. He's, he's sort of right in the middle of this sort of swirling musical world in Leipzig. And um, of course, the way that he's thinking about sound. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> now, as we, so the first chapter really sets up um, him and the, the context for understanding the relationships also between his ideas of sound sensation, um, his way of thinking about experiment in those terms, and also mm-hmm. his, the importance of that, the background um, that he has in the music scene, his embedding or his embedment in the music scene. And again, um, this is setting up to what's going to be a continuing thread, which is the really beautiful way that I think you're showing how um, the science and the aesthetics are very, very much um, co-defining and are extraordinarily enmeshed in ways that are really, really interesting. So this continues to be the case as we move into the later chapters of the book, or, or the, the later chapters um, starting with chapter two, right? So later than chapter one. Um, so in chapter two, this is super, super interesting. So you're focusing here on um, a period in which we have a new focus on and a new interest in not just the producer and performer of music, but the listener. So the person is actually listening to the sound. And this brings with it a new interest in the individual subjective experience of sound, the individual um, experience of the listener in particular. So this chapter looks at three central figures in the aesthetics, the criticism, and the study of music in the second half of the 19th century. This is A.B. Marx, Edward Hanslick, and Hugo Riemann. So um, I want I want to dive into this material by asking you to start by talking a little bit about Marx and Hanslick. You mentioned the importance here of, Han- of Marx and Hanslick's theories of form, their aesthetics theories of form. Um, and we need to kind of understand that before we then look at what's actually a really weird and really interesting case of Riemann, right? Who can, mm-hmm. uh, apparently, he's the only one who can hear the sounds that are the basis of the theory that he's producing. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about um, what are these aesthetic theories of form? Why are they important? And then maybe how do they set the stage for understanding what's happening with this totally wacky, at least for me, case of Riemann? <laughs> um. Yeah, Riemann is, a, he's a, I think in some ways, a, a complicated, a many-pronged thorn in the side of musicologists still. Um, he, um, yeah, he, he's sort of an interesting story in his own right. So, yeah, so this chapter actually focuses, you know, for a history of science book, almost everyone in this chapter would probably be called a musicologist or a music critic um, or music theorist, I suppose. Um, musicology doesn't really sort of exist as a, a discipline, you know, title until the end of the 19th century. Um, so Marx and Hanslick, however, are, are, you know, enormous figures in the middle of the 19th century and um, music theory and music criticism. And they, in part because they actually do propose a new sort of approach to understanding music and, and analyzing it and sort of a criteria by which to analyze it, as well as in the case of Marx, especially a way of composing it. And for Marx, the way in which you analyze music is, you know, sort of feeds back into the way in which you should compose it. And um, so he breaks it down into these small parts, the, the gong and the sats, and, um, and then sort of builds up from there. Um, 
Hanselik also has this, um, I mean, it, it, it feels very almost algebraic for both of them. They want to break down music into component parts and then show how analyzing these component parts then allows you to say, to make a judgment about the, the quality of the music. And um, so Hanselik's, um, you know, sort of formalist theory of, of music is, is quite similar in, in that sense. And and what I what I find so interesting is that, you know, by Framing the analysis of music in this way, they seem to be drawing, at least um, in some sense, on you know, the goals of science, right? And, and that you can sort of break things down. It's a sort of very mechanistic way of, of looking at, at music. And, you know, you can break things down into these pieces and, and sort of explore these pieces and then put it back together and you have a greater understanding of the piece. And um, so this, I would say, opens up the space for the music world and the scientific world to overlap, right? Because they're using a similar technique. And and I think in this open space, Riemann is able to slip in. And it gives him, you know, if he's also presenting these kind of formal theories of music analysis, um, there's a sense in which he believes that he is being, you know, sort of scientific and rigorous. And, and in many ways he is, right? I mean, who are we to really judge one way or another? But um, he claims that he is, and and he's able to present what, for at least a brief time, everyone thought was a pretty reasonable theory of musical dualism. And, and he bases this on his own experience of sound that no one else seems to be able to confirm, but they're willing to kind of let it slide for a while. And and so yeah, so this is I think what you're alluding to, these sounds that nobody else can hear but are willing to accept, um, at least for a brief time. So this is I mean, this seems really strange for a modern reader, right? So he did Riemann develops this idea of harmonic undertones. And he does these experiments um, about and around harmonic undertones. But here, his personal experience, and remember, like, he's the only, or I'm telling listeners to remember, I'm not telling you to remember, obviously. Obviously, you remember. Um, So so listeners will remember uh, that we've been talking about the fact that so he's doing these experiments, and the primary source of evidence is his own experience in hearing these sounds that nobody else can hear. So how and why is it, um, like how does this happen? How do readers be- believe and come to buy the fact that these sounds that nobody else can hear actually exist enough to accept them as sources of scientific evidence? Well, yeah, so I think there's there's two things on. I think... For one thing, and, and actually Alexander Rating has written quite a bit more on Riemann, and, and it's I highly recommend that if anyone's interested in, in learning more about Riemann to, to look at some of his stuff on him. Um, uh, I think there's two things going on. So I think Riemann has this neat and tidy dual system that encourages, I mean, I, I think there's kind of finding what he's listening for. Um, in the sense that you need these undertones to exist in order for this system to work. And in, in any way, um, analytical system. And so just so it's clear for listeners, I suppose, is these undertones are, the way Riemann likes, conceives of them is as this kind of mirror image of the harmonic overtone system. 
so um, they are sort of descending down the scale and they form the basis of the minor scale. So all of this is reinforcing the Western um, increasingly but people are becoming aware that there are other tuning systems out there besides the Western one um, that everyone in Europe is used to. So I think there's a sense in which these, you know, people allow for this. They're willing to accept these, because he claims to be an expert, right? And, and you know, he has, you know, all the credentials in some ways of, of being an expert. And so, you know, perhaps he hears things that we you know, we regular people can't necessarily hear. Um, there's, you know, sort of the beauty of the system that comes out of this and, and that it's a, you know, a very, um, workable um, means of analyzing music. And then there is, again, you know, there's, as I mentioned, there's this increasing instance in the sonic world. And, and it's partly because the Western tuning system uh, or the, the, mu- the actual musical scale is being revealed to not necessarily be the only one um, that exists in the world. And so a lot of this um, realization is bound up to, you know, sort of colonial expansion and the exposure of um, not just explorers, but actual regular people in Europe to other cultures, right, beyond European cultures and, and learning about Balinese Camelon or, um, you know, various Persian scales and, and things like this and realizing that there are other systems. Um, with, there's also at the same time going on a shifting, a shift in the actual tuning system. So this gets a little complicated to do just with me waving my hands <laughs> at a microphone. But, um, presently our Western music operates within an equal tempered system, right? So the, the 12 tones of the scale are equal sort of distance apart from each other. We can sort of do that under my hand again. Um, previously, there were different tunes where they were not necessarily equal. And so the intervals between different notes on in the scale would be prioritized to be sort of pure harmonically. And so this correlated a lot more, a lot, better to you know, if you're actually taking a string and it's vibrating you know and then if you shorten the string by half and pluck it and you know send it vibrating these are going to be in direct relationship to each other as octaves, and, and you do this for different other ratios to create different intervals like a fifth or a third and um so earlier tuning systems would prioritize keeping those pure and then you know distribute the other notes of the scale um, in relation to that. And so that's sort of going out of style, basically, by the middle of the 19th century. And um, so there's a number of people that are kind of reacting to this and think that this, this is bad. Um, other people think this is great. It's a lot easier for um, instrumentalists certainly, to deal with equal temperament once they're used to it. I mean, it may very well sound strange to people for a while um, to shift the equal temperament. This is one of those things that it's really hard, um, unless you've had a fair amount of musical training, it's hard to hear the difference between equal temperament and some of these earlier tuning systems. Um, but people in the 19th century definitely would have heard this difference. And some of the actual individuals that I talk about um, in the book, so like Hermann um, Helmholtz, actually, he finds it just sort of almost painful 
um, to listen to equal temperament and is constantly complaining about it and is sort of lamenting um, the fact that this is clearly, you know, the wave of the future. And so this is another one of these things that kind of destabilizes uh, the sonic experience. So um, if orchestras are sort of transitioning to these new um, tuning systems and there are advocates on both sides saying this is great and others saying this is terrible, I think it, it sets up, again, the sense that you don't necessarily know what is right or wrong, so maybe we'll just let everyone kind of choose. I mean, again, and, and that's maybe overstating it a little bit, but the instability allows for, I think, greater credibility for the individual experience right or wrong way for this brief period. Um, and there's also, I mentioned in this book, that they're, they're working on establishing a standard um, note in which to do. So again, you know, in the 20th or well, 21st century, we, um, you know, the orchestra comes out and the um, before the conductor comes out, the, the concert master or concert mistress stands up and, and plays usually a 442A now, I think actually it's either 440A or 442, but apparently we're moving higher. So, um, and then the whole orchestra tunes to that. That's a convention that was established right in this grid. And there was actually an, sort of a big debate about what, you know, that pitch was going to be because there was quite a bit of variation across. Um, orchestras and, and ensembles throughout Europe and usually people, the ensemble would just tune to the organ, the church organ and those of course were tuned differently across um, across Europe so again there's this, this real kind of instability um, going on in the sonic world at this time and, and I think this opens up a lot of possibilities uh, that allows Raymond to kind of slip in there and claim you know, that what he hears is right and people are okay with that now, you've just um, briefly mentioned Helmholtz, and that brings us really nicely into the next part of the book. So this is a really fascinating part of the book for anybody interested in the ways that how we understand science and its history and aesthetics and its history is very much now bound up in concerns about practice, but also concerns about materiality. So this chapter really looks at the really central um, importance of materials and materiality what's happening in changing ideas about sound sensation and the expertise and role of the individual in the body in particular of Hermann Helmholtz. So by the mid-19th century, as you've already mentioned a little bit earlier with recourse to an increasing acknowledgement of different cultural modes of music, here you emphasize um, for us in the book in this third chapter that it's not just variations in space that are producing different musical cultures, but also variations in time. Musical culture and musical aesthetics are very much being understood um, as grounded historically um, and not just um, in terms of space um, in this part of the book in a really, really interesting way. So this chapter focuses on Helmholtz and looks at the ways that he reconciles his, on the one hand, his understanding of sound as universal and law-like. So we have the uni sound is universal, sound is law-like on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, his belief that sound and uh, musical aesthetics are very much bound up in particular cultural and historical moments and that it varies over space and time. So how does he have it both ways? How does he both have the universal and the really um, culturally and historically rooted? Well, you argue here in a really beautiful way that I want to um, ask you to talk a little bit about that he does this 
in two primary ways. So one of this is by putting special emphasis on musical instruments, the importance of musical instruments. And at the same time, um, by looking at his own personal relationship to music and instruments. So can you talk a little bit about this um, larger uh, phenomenon of, uh, or not larger, but focusing in on Helmholtz? How in particular did Helmholtz's own musical training and his own familiarity with musical instruments and their manufacture shape um, his ideas in this time? And, and why is that important for the larger argument of the book? Okay, sure. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of um, what I'm trying to do here in this book, and, and as you as you just sort of described, um, or trying to do in this chapter, is show how the very sort of of both generating music, right? So him playing instruments, um, especially the piano. He has he has good extensive training in piano and and, and loved the piano and would play every day. Um, and and he he could play several. All these all of these people were, were I would say competent, if not um, quite good at various instruments, um, musical instruments. And um, so the way in which his you know playing music over and over and playing it for himself and playing it. And he, and he talks about this, that um, he plays the music the way he wants to hear it. And so this is sort of one part of what will become a loop in just a second. Um, so he's, you know, he's sort of generating sound himself and on, on his instruments that he chooses, he's actually the Steinway. There's um, the Steinways essentially make a piano for him. Um, and, and he's sort of, you know, tunes it to the tuning system he wants, and it, it has all the features that he likes. And so that's one part is that he's sort of generating the sound himself. Um, and and this, of course, in, informs his sound studies, right, and the way that he's conceiving of sound um, when he, he's doing his experiments. Um, but he's also listening in a very specific way. And, and this is why I sort of use Chapter 2 to set up this new sort of analytical way of listening to music and and Helmholtz is very much one of these people that uh, you know approaches music in a way that it's something to be studied and and sort of you prepare for and um and there's a number of places in his diaries or in his letters um to various people where he talks about going to concerts and you know and he'll describe a performance of, you know, a Mendelssohn piece. And he says, you know, this section, you know, it's so hard for the oboes to hit this note right, but this time they did it and they did a great job um, or something to like, to that effect. And so what this says is that, um, well, a number of things. This says certainly that he understands orchestration and he understands the abilities of different, you know, sort of sections of the orchestra and the different instruments and what they're capable of, right? And so hitting, you know, this like high C sharp is really difficult for an oboe. Um, I just made that up. I don't actually know what <laughs> difficult or not for an oboe. I know the oboe in general is very difficult. So um, if you're hitting any note clearly, that's great on the oboe. Um, and Helmholtz knows this, right? So he has a real familiarity with a, a sort of diversity of instruments and, and what, you know, they are kind of physically capable of, um, you know, as musicians, these very instrument. Um, it also says that he knows this really well, right? He's gone to this concert and he already knows um, you know, how it plays out and where, where the difficult sections are, where the lyrical sections are. So there's a sense in which he has either studied the sheet music, which is certainly possible because he does talk about going to, um, to buy sheet music and, and this is pretty common for people to buy sort of the piano version of an orchestration. 
Um, and he talks about going and like digging through big piles and looking for music. But it also says to me that he has heard this piece a number of times. And so he's gone to repeat performances and, you know, and that this is sort of just part of his way of engaging with music. And this is impressive because again, it's performances, right? So this is before recording and replay technology of the phonograph. So if you want to hear music in this time period, you need to either play it yourself, which Humboldt does, or you need to go like be near somebody that's playing it, right? So um, again, music figures quite largely into his life and in the sense that he is going to several concerts in a week. Um, he moves in this musical world. Um, quite comfortably, I would say. And in terms of how this relates to the larger, I think there's um, you know, science studies lately and especially in history of science, there's been a lot of focus on certainly the material culture of science, but then also the way in which sort of tacit knowledge within the laboratory, um, well, how it circulates within, you know, within the sciences and, um, and how it's, you know, the role that it plays in the creation of scientific knowledge. And one of the things I'm trying to show in this book is, you know, not simply <laughs> that music is informing the science that's being done, although certainly it does, but, you know, getting at like the how question of that. And so in the case of psychophysical studies of sound, these, all of these practitioners are actually taking tacit knowledge or other realms, right? They're bringing in their musical knowledge. So they're bringing in their musical aesthetics, they're bringing in their musical performance skills, um, and they're bringing in their musical ears. They're bringing in the way that they are used to listening to music and applying that to the actual practice of science. And so, yeah, I'm trying to show how this other knowledge gets integrated into um, scientific knowledge. Great, thank you. Now, as we move into the last um, couple of body chapters of the book, I'm not going to be able to ask you of, about all of the fascinating things that are in Chapter 4, and it's a really <laughs> fascinating chapter. Um, now, you've already l- spoken a little bit about one of the foci of this chapter, and that is the accommodation experiments of Ernst Mach. So this, this chapter looks in particular at the collaboration between Mach and a Viennese music critic named Edward Kulka, we're both interested in this phenomenon of accommodation that you described a little bit earlier. So if you listen to the same music and you focus your attention on just the high notes versus focusing your attention on just the low notes, you're going to actually hear different kinds of sounds. Now, this um, the story of those experiments themselves is really fascinating, and I'll just kind of signal that for listeners to read this chapter and read it really carefully. But one of the really fascinating and surprising things for me is somebody who was trained in the history of biology and the history of evolutionary biology in particular, is that these experiments actually had really important bearing on ways of understanding evolution and Lamarckian evolution in particular in this period. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that, because I think for listeners just, you know, just looking at the title of the book or the description of the book may not know that there's this fascinating um, story in here about history of evolution um, that's actually really central to the way at least some of these figures are understanding music in this period. Sure, yes. Um, this is actually my favorite chapter also. I'm glad that you like it. <laughs> um, Mach is kind of the way that I got into this whole project initially. It grew out of a, 
in our paper on Ashmar. Um, so, right. So, in terms of the way in which this, this the accommodation study, and, and I should note that accommodation and hearing is still something not very well understood. I mean, phenomenon is not very bad for mechanisms that Mach is looking for in terms of, you know, sort of the physiological mechanism and then later the psychological mechanism that he's searching for and doesn't really find is never, it still hasn't been really established what it is. Um, that gives any sort of vindication for his failure um, in that sense. But, but he's certainly successful in another sense. And, and I think what I found so interesting about uh, this relationship between Mach and Koka is, is again that this study of accommodation forces them. I mean, there's a sense that if they want to study it on the terms that they're trying to study it on, they have to look at the individual um, and subjective experience of sound. There's really no way around it. If you're trying to see how someone's experience um, changes due to the changes in their attention, um, you need to be working um, very closely with one individual. And this also, I think, as a consequence of that, feeds into this historicism and and Mach's own historicism and later a lot of his philosophical uh, evolution. I think there are a couple different things going on. So so certainly there, this becomes a tricky way for Mach to reconcile what he later talked about as you know the sort of economy of thought and um, and how he's able to. That the scientific project into one that remains sort of phenomenological. And so if he's only going to prioritize direct experience of the world, you know, how is he able to then say something universal about the world? And he's able to do this partly through this idea of economy of thought that is his application of evolutionary theory. What I think is also really fascinating is that he's talking with Kulta about this extensively and, and I actually just um be coming out in a book on music and the stimulated body. Um that I don't know if we have is that a review right now this book but anyway and it, it's more about this Mach and Kuka relationship. Um so Kuka himself is and they're they write back about a ton of different things. Um one well, thing in particular that they talk about a lot is evolution. And so this is amazing to me that you know this this music critic um, wants to know so much about this or is willing to engage with Mach about it. And and then when you sort of learn about the context of Kuka, it, it makes some more sense. So he's um he's he sort of comes from a long line of Talmudic scholars. Uh, and when he comes He's he's sort of a music critic, but he writes a number of short stories about sort of rural Jewish love, and and so I think living in Vienna, there's a lot of ways in which he's trying to sort of find his place in this world, and um and I think evolutionary theory kind of helps him put those pieces together, and and he's also again trying to apply it to his actual study of music, and this is something that I talk about in this chapter that. Um, Mach really pushes him, you know, to, to develop essentially an evolutionary theory of music. And, um, so Kuka does it. And he actually, you know, he writes a short little bit and, and he shows how, uh, well, he thinks that he's shown 
you know, Beethoven's, um, you know, sort of one of the, the sort of themes from one of his symphonies can be traced all the way back to this traditional country dance. And, and he does this analysis where he basically lays it all out in, um, in written music and, and sort of talks about and, and in some ways, it's a lot of hand-waving. Um, it, you couldn't say that it was Darwinian, really, at all. I mean, there's no mechanism that he's discussing. Um, and in some ways, he's just sort of distilling down this melody and then showing that it's different. Um, but the fact that he's trying, I think, is very interesting. And, um, and it also, and I, and I know we're running out of time, so that, but he's, the way thinking about evolution is, is rather Unique in their form. They're basically Darwinian evolution. They're really talking about evolution. And when they're really talking about thinking in a psychophysical way. So it's not simply forms, like physical forms changing, but also um, ideas. And so it becomes a psychophysical um, evolution, essentially. And I feel like I just talked myself in a circle, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so there are, um, as we come to the final body chapter of the book, there's, um, we're also, you know, I, I don't want to take two hours of your time and, and we could easily spend that much time on, or spend another hour on the rest of the book. There's so much richness in this fifth chapter of the book as well. So this is a chapter that's focusing on the debate in the early 1890s between two figures, um, Wilhelm Wundt and Karl Stumpf, over their different and respective experiments in tone differentiation. So this is a debate that you detail in this chapter, and one of the things that's really important about this debate, as you show here, is that there are pretty high stakes, and the stakes are um, how we understand or how they understood the role of musical expertise and the listener's musical expertise in sound sensation studies. So can you talk briefly about this debate? Sort of what was the big deal um, between them? What was the debate all about? And why is that important for um, this last part of the story that you're telling in the book? Sure, yes. So I think, you know, while the, as you said, the, you know, the, the debate in some ways centers around, I mean, initially, and this is why I think it's really kind of a fascinating debate. Initially, it starts as, you know, each side accusing the other of misunderstanding and misrepresenting Keshner and his psychophysics. So this, you know, you know, it starts out as people arguing over, you know, who gets claims to this kind of godfather of this discipline or this sort of practice that they're doing. And, and but it, it moves away from that really quickly. And in, and in some ways, you know, I think it was clear intentional that that Keshner, Keshner's work was only so applicable to what they were doing. And what I think the debate about being about was music expertise, and the, and again, as you said, you know the the role that science and um, and in psychology, especially in experimental psychology, and so for and it and the breakdown, I think, aligns pretty much to the difference in the way that they understand what experimental psychology should be and what kind of practices that they're using. So, so for Stumpf, it's much more, um, you know, if you have experts, you use experts, right? And in some ways, this, this relates to sort of changing ideas of statistics and um, and their role in the... And, and for Stumpf, and this is sort of a gross oversimplification, but um, he's much more interested in, in capturing, you know, something more 
and this gets back again to the sort of universal versus sort of individual um, tension that's going on. And so he would rather have, you know, infinitely more data points and to sort of work with an aggregate rather than work with, you know, the expert. And so this becomes a core of the criticism that goes back and forth between um, the you know, whether or not you should be using experts at all, um, which would be the critique of Schnupp and Schnupp would say, why would you not use experts? Your people can't even hear. Um, certainly they don't understand the difference between these musical intervals. How could you even begin to test them on um, being able to distinguish between them? So really, um, I guess I don't say this quite explicitly in the chapter, but hopefully it's, you know, implicit. Um, this is about the soul of psychology in a sense. And um, and this is a critical moment in the history of psychology as it's sort of establishing itself as separate from philosophy, and and whether you know and what the role of experiment is going to be in this new discipline. And so for them, I think they both see this as as a, a kind of critical moment to define the future of the discipline, and that's part of why it becomes such a debate and becomes really quite personal. Um, and and. Cool at times. I, I feel like, you know, there's something that for this kind of insults that get slung back and forth in the 19th century. <laughs> really kind of cutting at times. Um, so this was, this was actually, you know, when I was saying that the dissertation, the, the life story ended in a death. Um, in some ways, this was a chapter where they sort of fought to the death. Um, but, but I think actually what, what is really going on, and, and hopefully this becomes clear, that you see this sort of psychophysics, or at least, you know, the, the psychophysical evolutionary, you know, subjective individual way of examining um, the musical experiment, experience, the sound, you know, sound sensation, uh, sort of, it sort of goes off on the sport, right, for, you know, working with the music, um, and musicology and things like that. So it doesn't, sort of central in, in terms of psychology. Um, what's left is sort of what, what Wundt is using it for, um, and that's sort of where it still exists today. But, but this interest in, um, you know, the study of sound sensation is both an aesthetic and a psychophysical project, I would say, lives on um, through the sort of students. Now the um, and so this actually brings us really nicely to the the last thing that I want to ask you before we wrap up um, and I sort of ask some closing questions. But before we get to that, I'll just footnote for listeners. There's also a really wonderful. Um, description in this chapter, and it, and it also comes up, I think, a little bit earlier, of descriptions of like, the piano as a pestilence and musicianship as a disease. And for anybody interested in the history of health, the history of medicine, but also the history of metaphor, um, there's a really interesting window here into that as it's playing out in ways that certain elements of music and musicality and musical instruments are actually being analogized to disease categories in, again, in ways that really surprised me and that I found totally fascinating. So I just want to signal that for listeners because um, that's a really fascinating part of the story that kind of runs as an undercurrent here. Um, You're... Your previous comments already alluded to something that you develop, I think, really, really nicely in the coda of the book, and that is sort of what happens after the end of this story. And so you talk a little bit about um, some of the later developments of 
these threads that you are um, showing in the body of the book really nicely. One of them um, is actually particularly interesting, perhaps, for um, listeners and readers who are interested in the modern studies of these phenomena, and that is the ways that these issues have played out in the current status of sensory perception research, and in particular in the field of neuroaesthetics. So could you talk maybe a little bit um, about the about the field of neuroaesthetics and the ways that this actually forms a coda to the story that you're telling earlier in the book? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a number of, um, as you mentioned, there. I think neuroaesthetics is probably the, the closest thing or the, the sort of most recent iteration of... Um, of psychophysical studies of sound sensation. And I, as my understanding of them, and, and I, I should say this as someone that, you know, just sort of looks at this as and, and, you know, and kind of, um, dove in too deeply, but they, my understanding is that they're, these are again, you know, efforts to scientifically understand, um, Aesthetics and where aesthetic judgments come from, and and how they work, and what you know sort of frameworks are used to to make aesthetic judgments, and um, you know so why do people find you know these images to be pleasing or these sounds to be pleasing or displeasing, and and again it, it relies on you know I think certainly sophisticated physical measurement as well as a lot of the new technologies that are used for um, within neurosciences uh, to to kind of try and find some correlations and, and connections and so in that sense I think you know this it, it seems like a very much a Fechner uh, project in that they're you know to come up with some larger understanding of aesthetic judgments through physical um, measurement. I would say um, that being said, so I think in that sense, it, it, it in some ways does carry on the psychophysical project. Um, in another way, I would say that it does not necessarily in the in the sense that there it is not itself a project. I think it's sort of the application of science to aesthetics and using aesthetics to understand science. And, the period that I'm looking at, I think, hopefully, it's um, become apparent that it, there's some kind of feedback loop, right? You, these these people are moving around in the late 19th century musical world, and and hearing late 19th century musical sounds, and that this then informs the way in which they talk about sound, right? And then which sort of goes back and feeds back into the way in which sound is then created, and, and that's. Helmholtz, I guess, is such a nice example because he himself becomes this loop, you know, through his body. He's actually, you know, doing this looping. Um, and I don't know if that's going on anymore. I don't think that, um, you know, certainly the examples and everything that these neuroaestheticians are using come, you know, from the sound world or the visual, you know, the world of visual culture. But I, I don't know if they're necessarily um, integrating their own sort of assumptions and, and preferences and biases into the way that they're setting up their scientific questions, which is probably good science, right? Um, or at least what we would call good science today. But it's not the same sort of phenomenon in which I think that the, the aesthetics are directly informing the types of questions that they're asking and the types of scientific knowledge that they're creating, um, which again is, is completely okay, but I think it's one of the things that's distinctly different from what is happening in the period that I'm examining. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much. Um, we've talked a lot about the book. Of course, there's going to be things, and there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to strictly because of time. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> there's lots in it didn't talk about it. It's totally forgotten to mention what you were saying right before we got cut off about um, this, this great anxiety about, you know, the, the role of certain instruments and um, and how that becomes a metaphor for um, again, I think this this tension about changing musical right, so um, this is right when, you know, the composers are actively, I think, playing with and then ultimately subverting uh, the Western music system. And, and so this is a really interesting time in music, and it, maybe that doesn't get, we didn't talk about that very much at all. Um, you know, the beginning, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there's some crazy music <laughs> being generated. And, um, and people, some people think this is awesome, and they're really excited about it, and others find it quite threatening. And, and of course, this, you know, is a part of, you know, well, like, the last chapter is one big fight, right? Because everyone's stressed out. Um, I would say one of my, the things I'm, I'm most proud of, and this is more of just like a, a history, um, a little history dorking out moment, is on page 118 and page 119, there's, so 118 has this image that is quite famous that's really supposed to kind of embody his psychophysical monism. And it, it, it feels very much like an Escher image in the sense that you're looking out from his eye socket and you see him, you know, drawing the same image, right? And, and you sort of see his nose and part of his mustache and his, like, legs and his, um, you know, his feet and his hand is drawing something. And then you sort of see nature beyond through the windows. And so this is... You know, people have loved to sort of examine this image already and, and talk about it quite extensively. And yes, that's great. But then I found in the archives, and it was actually the day of my interview for this job also, because I was sort of coordinating going to AHA for interviews and going to the archives. Um, I found in this letter to Kulka the same exact image. And, and so he's talking about this, you know, his monistic ideas, again, with, this music critic and and there so this this exchange right of ideas is um, illustrated quite literally um, here and and I was so excited when I found this and I was you know sort of dancing around as I like was going to my inner <laughs> about this kind of smoking gun or as I see it um, in terms of this intellectual and cultural exchange that that is occurring between um, what we would call a scientist and what we call a musician um, in a very natural way, right? They're, they're per completely comfortable with this exchange. <laughs> that must have been um, really a great energy to bring to the interview, too. So what a great time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was perfect timing. It was otherwise a very stressful week. <laughs> So, Alex, now that this is out, and congratulations on the book being out, what's next for you? you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Well, um, so I I have about one and a half, I guess you could even say two projects, although sort of one project and two half projects. But um, I'll talk just sort of about the main one um, that I'm really excited about. It, it grew out of a conversation with a at um, over dinner where we were kind of joking about, I mean, and he was 
he also does um, study stuff. He's contributing to the Osiris volume that we have coming out in the summer, um, this coming summer, on music and sound in the laboratory. And so Peter Pesek is is one of the contributors. Um, I'm one of the co-editors. And um, so Peter and I were talking about... Wouldn't it be terrible to write a history of music? And, you know, like, it would be so awful. It would be so terrible. And afterwards, I sort of came back to Mississippi and was thinking about it some more. And I just kind of sat down and scaled a lot of interesting themes music kind of elicits and, and got very interested in, you know, partly because I've been exploring the way in which hearing, right, listening changes over time, um, I became quite interested in, you know, what kind of hearing is necessary, what kind of listening is necessary to process background music. So you need to be, you know, in, on, on the one sense, you're sort of passively and you're not sort of directly listening to the piece unless you it has somehow caught your attention in some way. Um, at the same time, you are processing it and responding to it and Sometimes in physical ways, certainly in you know sort of emotional, psychological ways, and um, you know, and if it's this thing that we love to hate, and yet it's more ubiquitous than ever, then you know, where, why is that? <laughs> um, and that's sort of the larger question. So I developed this new project, and I actually just recently got news that I received an NSF grant to fund the research for it. Great, congratulations! Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, so next year, I'm not. I'm actually, um, we'll be doing, researching the whole time for this project um, and don't have any teaching obligations or anything here. Um, but it's a larger history of the co-development of new, t- new forms of listening and background music. Um, so it's a question of, you know, how, um, in what ways is this actively cultivated? Because there are a number of behavioral psychologists and industrial psychologists um, that are independently on the one hand, but then they also have contracts with like the Edison company <laughs> um, to explore the way in which music can affect mood and even behavior, right? And it can make you more efficient work, make you less efficient at work, it can make you happy, it can make you sad. Um, and then this gets turned into consumer products. And um, and then later in the, in the sort of after post-war America, you start getting some interesting pushback from people that don't want to listen to, you know, the stuff on the bus or in other public spaces. Um, you get pushback from composers and music theorists that, well, some are just sort of playing with this idea of ambient music and ambient sound. Others are talking about, you know, the pollution of the soundscape and the way in which background music is in some ways just a curtain to hide other damaging sounds. And, and they sort of advocate for preservation of natural soundscapes or creating more balanced, you know, sonic environments. And this is very much informed by the environmentalist movement. And um, you also get sort of interesting new conceptions of nature, right? When you get sort of nature sounds being recorded, um, one of the ironic consequences of nature sound recordings is that they drive away nature, right? So birds, if they hear these nature sound recordings, will think another bird is taking out his territory. 
Um, and so places that like blast this music out the front of their restaurants, you know, can essentially be um, replacing nature and um, or mood music, right? People, and this is with the rise of the bachelor pad culture, you get you know, a sense of like creating a, an environment where you can trap your prey, essentially. Um, so yeah, so that's the new project. That's sort of a garbled version of it, but you have, um, it's a 20th century project on of the science of background music and it'll be mostly an American story although certainly um, a number of German psychologists are going to sort of inform it and I think certainly cool dynamics are also going to this changing attitudes about background music as you know a tool of, of big brother and anxieties related to that and it'll go right up I think to the advent of the iPod because that's again where people gain control over their own sonic environment they can make their own playlists and they can create their own music right at this point um even if they don't have skills on traditional musical instruments they can generate stuff you know through a lot of new technology so it'll be it's sort of a long arc and, and kind of sprawling in a lot of different directions but um i'm pretty excited about it it's a totally great project so thank you so much alex so we will i'll wait eagerly to talk to you about the next book when it comes out okay sounds great. fabulous and congratulations great. again on this one and thank you so much thank you thank you very much you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time